Hello and welcome to another of the Sitcom Club interviews. Today I'm in conversation with John Chalice, best known for his role as Boise in Only Fools and Horses and The Green Green Grass, and most recently he's turned novelist. Thank you very much indeed, John Chalice, for joining us this week on the Sitcom Club. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Firstly, the second in the series of Reggie books has just been published, Reggie in the Frame. Can you tell us a little bit about Reggie Finch Lee? Oh, yes. Well, Reggie is a character I sort of invented. I mean, it's sort of me and, and a bit of Boise as well, and carrying on that theme of um, the fish out of water, somebody arriving in a completely different sort of lifestyle and having to sort of make their way. Reggie's really an amalgamation of lots and lots of characters that I've met down here. Because, you know, when I arrived here uh, 16 years ago, I was an incomer. I've always been a bleak townie. I'd grown up a lot in the country and so on, so I knew a bit about the country. But suddenly you're a long way away from what you're used to. And I lived in London for 35, 40 years, as has Reggie. And he's been um, a market trader and all those things. But he's a great character. He's, he's a bit accident prone, actually, but he's quite lucky and sort of tends to get out of things. Very charming character. But um, he's got a quite a demanding wife, an ex-Columbian burlesque dancer called Rosita. And she takes no prisoners, shall we say. And uh, so you've got to find ways of keeping her in the manner to which she's become accustomed. (laughs) (laughs) By accident, they uh, inherit a pile of uh, Victorian brick called Mortimer Towers um, here in sort of uh, Herefordshire, Shropshire. And uh, and it's really his adventures. And uh, he gets involved in all sorts of local stuff. And uh, as I did, like the Amateur Dramatic Society as well, and he's drafted into uh, play a particular part um, in Mamma Mia, which they're doing, you know, which is something I have experience of, of course, um, having been an actor for 50 years now and seen quite a lot of amateur productions. And in fact, early on in my career, I was I was part of an amateur company, so I know a bit about that. But um, the things that can go wrong, and it's just stuff that's happened to me, like in the village fate and going to the hunt ball and trotting racing and uh, and all these extraordinary characters to me down here. It's really that. And of course, he gets involved in some pretty dodgy schemes, and some of which are sort of bordering on legality in the first book. Um, and uh, I, I suddenly heard a story, you see, that there were no moles in Ireland. But I never knew that. I knew there were no snakes in Ireland, but apparently there are no moles either. And I thought, I don't know, it just set me thinking on a surreal track, you know, thinking what it, what would happen if there were and why would there be and so on. And then I thought about the, uh, you know, the troubles and so on. And I saw a lot of different factions trying to uh, make profit out of each other. And uh, so I thought, well, if somebody transported moles to Ireland, what would happen? You see, <laughs> so this is <laughs> this became the main theme in uh, in Reggie's Staggart Bay, and it's that sort of thing. In this case, he's discovered um, in Mortimer Towers in some uh, long-forgotten attic, um, a whole bunch of paintings which um, appear to be uh, old masters, you know, a bit of a Stubbs here, a bit of a Constable there, a bit of a Monet and a bit of a uh, Rubens maybe, you know, but of course they're all uh, they're all fakes. Being a Londoner, he puts it Sexton Blakes, you know, which is the, uh, the rhyming slang for fakes. But um, he sells them, he, uh, he starts to sell them as fakes, and, the, and they actually started doing quite well. And then somebody comes along and rather slightly says, uh, oh, I know a place in, um, in Italy that sort of churns them out sort of wholesale. Why don't you go out there and get some? And he always wanted to go to Italy, take Rosita to Florence, where there's lots of uh, quite rude male statues by Michelangelo and so on, which um, Rosita's quite keen on. Uh, now, this, again, is a part of my experience, because I went to Florence um, for the first time 
a couple of years ago. But it's extraordinary the amount of art you see uh, out there in public places, you know. And you're gazing at all this stuff. And of course, then you, you start seeing all these uh, places that are selling updated versions of Michelangelo's David, you know, so you can bring back your own David, you know, and all that. And uh, it's these sort of things that set me thinking. And, um, and so Reggie goes to Florence, having heard about these fake paintings. He takes Rosita with him. She gets very excited and they have a few adventures out there. But he comes back with some paintings. Well, I can't possibly reveal the rest of the plot. <laughs> but as you can imagine, I mean, he finishes up in um, sort of flogging them in the market, you know, and uh, other people started getting rather too interested in them. And he wonders why. And um, So there we are, Reggie in the frame. And uh, so he gets into a bit of trouble, but hopefully he'll get out of it as well. So. And you've also written a two-volume autobiography, Being Boise and Boise and Beyond. Do you enjoy the process of writing? Is it something that you can do as a nine-to-five piece of work, or is it something that becomes all-consuming when the manuscript has taken shape? Well, I, yes, I'm, I'm not a natural writer, I suppose, really. But I, I do find it difficult. And uh, one of the difficulties I have is um, sort of concentration that you need to have. But I've always had a terrible butterfly mind, and... Uh, the same at school, you know, if something sort of wasn't easy and wasn't happening, I'd look for something else to do that was easy. And uh, <laughs> But I've always been like that. So I'm struggling with myself a lot of the time to concentrate, to screw myself down and say, come on, uh, I've, I've got to uh, write. I've got to at least every morning, I've got to sort of get up early and uh, sit there and write, even if nothing's coming out. This is something I learned quite early was that, you know, if nothing's happening, because there are those days, there are some days you feel quite inspired, there are other days when actually nothing's happening at all. And uh, so the waste paper bin gets full up of screwed up pieces of paper and, and so on. And you think, well, I can't write, this is no good. But you've got to get past that because I've found that if you just keep on writing, even if it's rubbish, even if you keep throwing it away, eventually something happens, even if it's just one line, you know, one idea, one uh, remembered conversation or something that pops up. Because you'll find that if you look at that thing, something else will happen. And I found this with the autobiography. I thought, I can't write an autobiography. I can't remember anything. I've got terrible memory for names, for instance. You know. But wait a minute. Well, I must be able to remember things because I learn words. And, and, you know, I've done that for 50 years. And I found that once I started, so much stuff was coming out. And that's why it's in two volumes, because I never finished it. <laughs> the first time <laughs> I had a deadline, and I got to a particular point, and I, I talked to my editor, and uh, I said, look, I'm never going to finish this. It's awful. And, uh, and he said, well, I, actually, I think you've, you've arrived at a very good stopping point. And this stopping point, of course, was when Marlene came into the series of Only Fools and Horses, which, you know, was a big change for the character. And... Uh, both our lives, really. So that's where the first volume of the autobiography stops. And the second bit, Boise and Beyond, picks up um, after that. So that was two years of my life, really. But uh, I was absolutely amazed about how much stuff was coming out. But then, of course, you've got to forward into a readable version. And this is what my editor's terribly good at, constructing it and chapterizing it, you know, if there is such a word. Well, there is now, because I've just used it. I've decided, him, <laughs> I chapter, he chapters, he, she, or it chapters, you know. <laughs> but that's the bit I'm not good at, you know. I can write sort of dialogue and ideas and uh, scenarios and so on. Um, and I've got, I've got quite a good turn of phrase, I suppose. But it needs just organizing and tidying up, really. So that's what my editor does. But I found, talking for a long time about one particular subject, that was a great lesson to me, really. Not to give up, not to say, throw the you know, all the papers up in the air and say, oh, I can't do this, and stump off and try and do something that's easier. But to sit there, uh, because something will always turn up. 
Now, you mentioned before about your acting career, and as I understand it, your acting career would have begun on the, the stage, is that right? Oh, yes. yes it, well, in, um, sometimes not on the stage, because I started off in the children's theatre, which was touring around um, all over the country in, uh, in a little blue van with packed full of costumes and other uh, performers and so on and lights. And we had a little fit-up stage all made of Dexian, uh, which it bolted together, you know, with its own curtains and everything. And we'd fit that up everywhere we went in schools and do our little plays like Pinocchio and uh, The Emperor's Nightingale and all that. And that was the first thing I ever did. And I loved it. I absolutely loved doing it. And lots, I played lots of different characters and we were in a different town every day, which I also loved because I, I actually didn't live anywhere for about the first five years of my life because I was in rep. After Children's Theatre, I was in uh, Repertory Theatre. Uh, and again, you know, moving from town to town, you do a spring season, I suppose, or summer season and... Uh, You'd be into a winter season with a pantomime on it. And then you go, you could go round and round in those days in the 60s. You know, in the early 60s, you could just go round and round the reps if you had anything about you. You had to be able to get on the stage and say a few lines and remember them, of course. But I started off in stage management and I just loved the stage. First, I was the first thing I saw when I was a kid, I was about six years old, and I saw Peter Pan. I just wanted to be up there, you know. And, uh, and so all through school and all that, I, I didn't do much work at all, but I, uh, I was in all school plays <laughs> and impersonating people and playing my guitar and, uh, and generally, obviously, I needed to perform, you know, say, hey, look at me, look at me, I'm okay. You know? I was also quite good at sports. I had another stage there, really. I was in the school teams, you know, cricket, rugby, and football and so on. So, uh, so it was always in me. This is something I discovered when I started writing my autobiography. Because I suddenly thought, why? It's a weird thing to do, to still be doing at the age I am, you know, and still getting a kick out of it, you know. But obviously there was a need to perform from very early on. So you're born to do something. I mean, I suppose that's the key to it. I read about this time, within the acting profession, did stage work have higher priority over roles in TV and radio dramas? Were they seen as perhaps secondary to the main business of performing in a nightly play? Uh, well, you know, it's just something that that happened in those days. I mean, uh, when I was in rep, not everybody had a television. There was a theatre in every town, practically, and uh, the treat of the week was to come and look at the new play. And every week, you'd do another play, and you'd be rehearsing something during the day and playing something entirely different night. And uh, towards the late 60s, about all the rest. Oh, yes, it was 1966 when we uh, won the World Cup of football, I remember. Um, I got to the Royal Shakespeare Company. And after that, I mean, that was a terrific uh, year I had there with them. But then television came over the horizon in, in a much more uh, available form. There was a lot, television was more freely available, more and more people had got them, more and more television was being made. And there was an awful lot of work on telly in those days. And I started doing episodes of this and episodes of that. Sometimes I'd do two or three episodes of something. And uh, and that went on, ooh, I suppose, went on all my life, really. When somebody sent me um, a list of all the televisions I'd done in my whole career the other day, and some of them I'd completely forgotten about, but I couldn't believe it. The list was so long because I'd done uh, so many episodes of so many things, you know. Of course, the money was better. That was the, <laughs> that was the other thing. But I still um, love the stage, you know. And that's, you know, if I walk on uh, out onto a stage in a, in a smashing theatre, it's just a great thrill still. I was going to ask you about a couple of those TV performances because you had frequent roles around about this time as policemen and henchmen in drama and sitcoms. And you appeared on an episode of one show which we've mentioned several times in the Sitcom Club, which is not a sitcom, a show called Mr. Rose with William Mervyn. 
1968. DC Jackson and an episode called oh, The Frozen yes, Suite. Yes, they were yes. typical of the sort of thing I was doing, really. I'd done an awful lot of policemen, um, mainly because I was so tall and good-looking, you know. Um, yeah, I was played that an awful lot of policemen. Um, I suppose I was sort of slightly laconic manner, and um, I once asked somebody, I said, why do I play so many policemen? And um, the casting... Uh, Agent said, it's because you're very good at them. You know, it never occurred to me that I was any good at all. But um, I couldn't understand why I kept playing on these policemen. But uh, Mr. Rose, yes, I do remember that. I remember the name and William Mervyn very well. He's no longer with us, of course. Yeah, there was a lot of those sort of series going on. There was a, whole, there was a series around that time called Who Done It? It was about a series of detectives, one of whom was a woman, I remember. And I, I think I played a, a slightly dodgy vicar in that one, which was quite a, a move for me, really. A, for, away from the policemen and the villains and uh, into the church, which I thought was quite good. <laughs> and you also had a role in an episode of The Sweeney called Stay Lucky, eh? Where you were playing Skeff Warren, a heavy alongside Peter Vaughan. And you had a, a shootout... Spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen this episode, you had a shootout in the new Wimbledon Theatre. Was this a location that you had previously appeared in on the stage? No, no, it wasn't actually. Yeah, but it was quite a big theatre, but I remember the Sweeney, yes, very well. And a very exciting thing to be in. And um, it was directed by a guy I worked for quite a lot called Douglas Canfield. And I did a lot of stuff with him. A Doctor Who, I did uh, Beau Gest, I did with him. And, uh, and also a sort of a thriller called Number on End with an Australian actor called Nick Tate, I remember. But uh, the Sweeney, I think, was the first one. And Well, I, as I say, I looked pretty hard and tough. I wasn't hard and tough at all, really, because, um, you know, I tend to try and run away from fights. I always had done. Um, I was made to box at school, but I hated it. I absolutely hated it. And I remember that um, I looked quite threatening, and I remember I had to beat somebody up in that, and uh, then the fight director came up and he said, you've never hit anyone before, have you? And I said, what, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I kept them on the end of the left jab at school. You know, he said, no, no. No, he said, when you hit someone, you mean it, he said. And then he had to show me how to uh, hit someone, which was a bit of a come down for me. But I'm glad he did, because I've remembered since then, you know, what what he said. But it was true. I mean, I had no idea how to rough somebody up, really. Um, and so I had this sort of complete double life where I looked pretty tough and threatening, and I got a great, quite a dark face. And yet I'm a bit of a pussy and a pansy underneath it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> You had a role in Open All Hours in 1976, you were a bread delivery man. Was this the first time that you were playing opposite David Jason? Yes, it was, yes. I uh, Again, it was another um, departure for me. Uh, no policeman and no villain, but I played a bread delivery man, and his name was Formula One, the bread man. And, uh, and he was called Formula One because he always drove at 100 miles an hour all over the place. And I just did one scene with Ronnie Barker and David... And uh, great. I mean, Ronnie Barker was a big hero of mine, really. A uh, big hero of David Jason's, too. I mean, he was known as the king of comedy, really, because he had, all, he had this wonderful sort of panoply of characters. And he was so watchable and so funny and, uh, and much revered. Went on later to the two Ronnies and all sorts of series. And uh, David had been in a couple of things with him before, including, of course, Borage. So he knew uh, Ronnie quite well. And... Uh, and this is this is a very successful series. In fact, it's sort of come back again recently, hasn't it? I think. And I'm looking forward to a call from them so Formula One, the Birdman, can come back uh, this time, uh, sort of 50 years later, still driving at 100 miles an hour, which I think would be a terrific idea. He'd probably have his own bread delivery yes. service by now. He's probably, yes, he's probably right. a... I think it'd be quite funny if he came back and he was exactly the same, you know, he was just, because <laughs> he was quite feckless. I mean, there's some idea that he was always late because he was dallying with the ladies he was delivering to and so on. Um, 
But no, this, uh, no I, I met David for the first time, and uh, little did I know that uh, he's going to feature in my life quite a lot. You also had a role in an episode of Citizen Smith in 1980, and that, of course, was written by John Sullivan and also produced by Ray Butt. Yes, that's right. Well, that's where the break came, really. Again, little did I know at the time, but um, I was uh, i was actually in America at the time, sort of flirting with America, um, because I'd done a couple of uh, Tom Stoppard plays and um, got really completely seduced by America, I suppose. And I thought that's where the future lay. You know, a lot of people were saying very nice things and so on. I got a couple of very good reviews. And, you know, I thought, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to fall in love. I'm going to get a green card, get married to an American woman. Then I can work on both sides of the Atlantic. See, that was my plan. But as with a lot of these things, it was quite fantastical, really. And uh, and I need still needed to earn a living, you see. So my agent rang me and said, uh, you know, what are you doing? You've been offered this part. I said, oh, what is it? He said, it's a policeman. I went, oh, not again. <laughs> but I thought, well, I'd better keep my hand in in case things don't work out in America. And, uh, and also, you know, I'd run out of money, to be honest. So back I came and, um, you yeah, know, it's a nice part. It's a dodgy policeman in the... Uh, and it put Robert Lindsay on the map, that series. You know. um, but again, I had no idea. It was just another episode of another series, and I, I thought it was fun. And uh, I did something a bit different. I thought I played so many policemen, and what can I do? And I, I sort of borrowed some of the characteristics of uh, of a guy I'd known in a pub in the 70s, a really curious character. It's a bit of a Walter Mitty type, a bit of a loner, and used to stand in the pub and pontificate about practically everything, you know, a kind of pompous man, and a uh, man of mystery. You know, the same I, saw, I, saw, I said to him uh, one day, I said, what do you actually do for a living, uh, Gordon? And he said, he said, uh, well, to be honest, uh, I cannot really talk about it because uh, the most of it is top secret. Um, <laughs> but safe to say it is in the electronics trade. <laughs> And he had this weird, stilted way of talking, you see, and uh, and I always remembered it. Given that I'd always copied people and uh, I enjoyed impersonating people, it would always remain with me. And uh, so I thought I'd invest this policeman in Susan Smith with a few of his characteristics. And, uh, and the result was John Sullivan came up afterwards and said, he said, I really like what you've done with that character. He said, I'm going to try and use that again one day. And I thought no more of it, you know, and people say all sorts of things, particularly in America. <laughs> and so off I went and... Uh, I actually got into the National Theatre and I was doing a couple of plays in the National Theatre and trying to become a proper actor. And that was good. It was a nice place to be, walking out on the Olivier stage and all that. Uh, and then uh, about a year later, I suddenly got a letter from Ray Butt and a script. And would I come along and do a second-hand car salesman for them in a brand new comedy series called Only Fools and Horses? So this is 1981 and I read it and I thought it was very funny. Jumped off the page at me. It's only one scene, only one day's filming. With David Jason, <laughs> so I sort of knew, you know, and, and so I said, "Yes, delighted." So um, off I went, and, uh, and of course I I tied it up because Ray Butt, as you say, was the producer of Citizen Smith and also the producer of uh, Only Fools and Horses, and he was a man really who got John Sullivan on the map at the BBC and pushed for him and his series to be looked at by the, the right people and so on. And so I thought, oh, well, it, it's that character they like, that John Sullivan was absolutely um, true when he said he liked it. And so I, I did. I had to adjust it a bit because it's a different character, obviously. So that's how I started, and that was the one day filming. That went very well, and I enjoyed it. very funny. You see David Jason and Nick Linters were going to be a very good double act. But uh, nobody said anything. Nobody said, oh, you'll definitely be back in the next series. And... Uh, 
And actually, nobody said there was going to be another series anyway, at all. Nobody said anything. They just said, thank you, and uh, bye. You know, so off I went. Went back to the National and uh, did something in the West End. And uh, the following year, blow me down, there was, a, there was another series, Only Fools and Horses. I'd like to bring the character back and do another episode. And that was uh, Losing Streak, and this time he was much more heavily featured. The big poker game episode with Del Boy and uh, Del Boy selling Nelson Mandela mansions and everybody else's property to stay in the game. Boyce is a much rougher character in that episode in particular compared to how he is then later on. He's much more ruthless, I suppose you would say. Yes, yeah, sure. I get, well, it's, it evolved quite a lot. Yes, you see, it became quite hard in that one. But, you know, it softened up. And when we did the spin-off series, The Green Green Grant, of course, it became a completely different sort of character, really. I think what they were trying to do, this, it was still early days, you see. It was only seventh, eighth episode that they'd done at that stage. You can see, I mean, Trigger, played by uh, Roger Lloyd Pack, God rest his soul, uh, was quite a dodgy character to begin with. And it was only later, really, that he evolved into this character that we knew and loved so well, who appeared to be uh, operating on different planets entirely. I mean, that wasn't the case to begin with. So I think all the characters sort of evolved. And as uh, John Sullivan got to know us better and then began writing for us personally. As you mentioned before, Series 4, we see Marlene for the first time. Had you previously worked with Sue Holden as before, Only Fools? No, I hadn't. I, I, I hadn't worked with her before. I knew her by reputation as being very good. And she had a connection with uh, Windsor Theatre Royal, where, which I had worked at several times. And so I sort of met her briefly because she eventually she got married to the man who ran Theatre uh, Mark uh, Piper. The idea of Marlene was sort of banded about. She was kind of a running joke for a long time, her indoors, and all the lads remember Marlene, so she'd been around the block a few times, you know, because of a fascinating sort of character. And there was a great discussion about whether she should actually appear or not, you know, because it was delicious in a way that you could form your own opinion on what she might be like. So it's like radio, in other words, so everybody had their own version of what Marlene might look like. But eventually it was decided she should come along, and, um, and Sue Holderness turned up, and uh, she sailed through it with a wonderful character. I think we, uh, we've actually just broken the record for the couple married for the longest time on television. Oh, well, I think I'm halfway through the green, green grass, we broke it. It used to be Terry and June, I think, uh, Terry Scott and June Whitfield. But um, I think it's Boyce and Marlene now, so we are actually record holders, okay? <laughs> so I want a bit of respect out there from people. Well, that's, that's, that's duly noted. We'll keep a record of that. And it's not if... exactly your Olympics, <laughs> although it does feel like it sometimes, I have to say. <laughs> well, if any future TV couples are threatening to overtake the record, we'll let you know. And uh, Please, yes, yeah. yes. That's um, very good. You also, at the end of 1985, to Holland back, that's the first of the feature-length episodes, do you yourself have a preference between film or the traditional studio VT studio audience? Being a theatre man, basically, I, th I think I, I like the studio audience. I do like a live audience. You know, I, I sort of respond to it and, uh, and enjoy it tremendously, you know, um, because all sorts of things happen uh, with a studio audience and, uh, and they love the mistakes, you know. <laughs> As long as you, you don't get too upset, you know, because something will go wrong somewhere. I mean, an actor will forget his words or a piece of scenery will fall down or something doesn't work, or, you know. And it's uh, it's wonderful because it's a special night for people. And Only Fools and Horses here became a sort of a hybrid, sort of halfway between um, television and all the technical strictures that you have to... Uh, to go through, you have to stand in the right place and face the right way and all that, so it's quite restricting, really. But you have this live audience, of course, which you've got to consider, and the laughter on that night 
is the laughter that is used during the show. I mean, it is engineered in that if it goes on too long or if the, the audience um, bursts into a round of applause, then uh, that's sort of cut out. Um, and sometimes they will laugh over uh, over an important line, an important piece of plot that won't be heard otherwise. You know, so that sort of engineering happens, but the, but the audience laughter is always live. So that's good. So you've got to play to a live audience, in it, and you've also got to be uh, very technically minded too. So it's quite a hard job. No, so Hallenbach was on film, um, to answer your question. In a way, it was quite freeing, I suppose, because it looked fantastic, I thought. It was such a great story. But I sort of missed the audience, to be honest. I don't know. So I, it, it, it's all very different. I mean, filming studio work, television studio work, and uh, stage work, all different. And they're all different disciplines, really. So you have to uh, be able to do them all. That's right. There was another show they did without an audience. And I think the feeling was that it was better with an audience, with a live audience. Oh, was that um, a royal flush? Yes, that's right. Yes, yes, that's right. Yes, yes. That's the one. And also in 85, you did a little duet with David Jason that probably nobody's seen in the UK and probably nobody's seen outside of Australia and New Zealand because it was an advertisement for Rover cars that I think went out in just Australia and New Oh, Zealand. yes, yes. Yes, that's right. We did it in front of Nelson Mandela Mansions, didn't we? Yeah. Um, yes, I'd forgotten that. You see, this is what happened. <laughs> but I think it was one of those things that we enjoyed doing it at the time, but we didn't think it was ever uh, very good, really. But it was one of those things you did, and you got asked to do uh, quite a lot of them. I had a few uh, some contacts from um, Australia and New Zealand about that. But it's one of those things you tend to sort of try and forget about, I think, <laughs> from what I remember, anyway. <laughs> As I understand it, your favourite episode of Only Fools is The Sky's the Limit. Do you have a favourite Only Fools moment, even if it's just a specific piece of dialogue or even a reaction shot? Uh, yeah, I think uh, it was really when you found out what uh, Boyce's first name was. Um, and I think it was uh, in Sickness and Wealth, I think. And there was a seance just set up by Dell in a room above the nag's head. And he's trying to reach Mum for some reason or another, which I can't quite remember. But the media, Melcy Partridge, I think her name was, uh, trying to commune with the spirits. And uh, she starts off by saying, I've got a message for someone called Audrey. Uh, no, no, not Audrey, Aubrey. And the camera looks at everybody, because we're all sitting there around the table with our fingers touching, you know, Ken McDonald and Roger Lloyd Pack and David and... Nick and also Buster Merrifield we're all sitting there with our fingers touching sort of trying not to giggle and uh, Aubrey Aubrey she says and everybody looks at each other going Aubrey no, I've never heard of Aubrey oh it's a great mystery and then the camera pulls back and uh, Boise says I am here <laughs> and, and I just I think it's my favourite not, not even as a great Boise moment but it was so brilliantly filmed and it's such a good idea. It's just a great piece of writing and uh, camera work, you know, that's all. And I remember in the studio, it just, I mean, the audience just collapsed, you know, and um, just wouldn't stop laughing. And uh, and then we started laughing, and then we had to do it again. Oh, you know, it's one of those. Uh, but I think that's a favourite moment, really, for the characters. But there's so many. So many. I mean, yeah. God, you could go on for half an hour, couldn't you? Remembering bits. And whilst you were still appearing in Only Fools, throughout that time, you were also appearing in other bits and pieces, other sitcoms here and there. One in particular I was going to ask you about was you had a lovely little turn as a French officer in Then Churchill Said to Me with Frankie Howard, which of course then wasn't shown for about sort of 10 years or so after it was no, made. No, that's right. No, 
well, it's one of those <clears throat> lucky things that happen to you. You know, I've always been a big Frankie Howard fan. It always made me laugh a lot, particularly when he was doing his stand-up acts and his whole, yes, no, oh, anyway, yes. See, and, uh, and I used to impersonate him, and uh, but I just thought he was a funny guy. And to be part of a series with him was was wonderful, you know, because you know, working with one of your heroes. Actually, he was quite a sad man, really. He, uh, he found it all quite difficult. He... He really wanted to be an actor. That's what he wanted to be, and not a comedian. But he, something happened to him when he got a script. He got a script, and and he got very sort of tied up, knotted up, and didn't know what to do with it. And put, you know, just put him on the stage and get him to go. Oh yeah, yes. And he was he was wonderful, and he was very good at uh, at doing all that. So that's a bit sad. I have to say, out of the rehearsals for the scenes, he was hysterically funny. Um, and, and absolutely lovely. And uh, and he was fascinated by the whole uh, process of acting, you know, because I was playing a man who couldn't see. And, uh, and how you go about that and how you put that across, you know, uh, how you try and do it in a believable way, um, addressing a filing cabinet as if it's a person, for instance, you know. And he was, he was really, uh, really interested in that and, and the process of doing it, you know. Um, but you could see that it just didn't sort of quite work. It should have worked. It was... It was because he was in that conspiratorial way that he was when he, when he was the Roman... Um, oh, up on pay, yeah. Up on pay. No, and he said, yes, you see. And he had this wonderful thing about, no, you see, he's just got he's in a very good mood, you know. And uh, so he was talking about Churchill instead, and he was Churchill's Batman, and well, I say the war's not going very well, is it? No, listen, anyway. And it should have worked, and I don't know why it didn't. I, th- I think he was finding those bits, but the rest, because he had to be... Um, a sort of a genuine guy in, in situation comedy incidents. That's when it didn't work, when he had to do a formalised script, a formalised acting. See, I may be totally wrong about this, but he really wanted to be an actor, but couldn't do it. It wasn't him. I'd like to be a stand-up comic, but I'm not, and I can't do it. I can tell stories, but I can't stand up there for an hour and a half and entertain people you know off the cuff like Billy Connolly or someone like that you know I think it was one of those and that, and that was a bit sad but it was a it was wonderful to work with him at least uh, just for that brief time and, and it wasn't shown was it I, I think the reason it wasn't shown was because of the Falklands War I think so yes that would have been 1982 you see so I mean, that, that probably the same year that I did uh, the second Only Falls and Horses episode. And you also appeared opposite Richard Briars in an episode of Ever Decreasing Circles, and I noticed that you had much, much earlier in the decade, you had played in Rattle of a Simple Man at the Savoy with Peter Egan as your director. That's right, yes, that is a connection, yes. That's when I'd come back from America and... Um, second time, that's right, that's right. I'd come back to do uh, Citizen Smith, and then... Um, I was offered the yeah, Rattle of a Simple Man, so three-hander with John Alderson and uh, Pauline Collins, so smashing uh, play. And, um, yeah, we were in the West End uh, Savoy Theatre. We opened in uh, Windsor, I think, so I was back at Windsor again, and then uh, we played at Savoy uh, on the Strand for uh, six months, I think, and then went on a tour all around the country. That was good fun. I mean, it was again, it was only one scene. It was a very pivotal scene in the... Uh, play and yeah that's the first time I really met uh, Peter Egan and um, and he persuaded me to do the part and that was a big part of my life I suppose and, uh, and that, I think that was the same year that uh, just now following on from that uh, Only Fools and Horses started it was another of those things where I was still hovering about um, staying in America or not or not going back there and it's all very difficult 
Oh, terribly difficult. And, uh, and I think I got married again then, too. So it was, it was a year for um, lots of changes being made, yeah. And to bring things to the present day, I mean, recently, of course, we've seen you in the green, green grass. Was that an idea that was ever floated during the time of Only Fools? And was that actually something that you would have wanted to consider? Because we've seen situations previously where characters have left a sitcom to go into their own spin-off series, whereas in this case it happened after the event. Well, I, uh, I'd always, uh, you know, in a jokey way, said to John Sullivan, you know, when a uh, Boise Marlin going to get their own series, you know, and he'd say, yeah, get out of here, you know, I've got enough to do, ha ha ha, you know, and all this. Um, so, but I did something, you know, you know, you thought, you know, in your dreams it would be great. About it, but it wasn't, it wasn't happening. Only Fools and the Horses had uh, come to an end twice. It finished in 1996, and they. You know, they went off down the yellow brick road. Everyone thought that's the end of it. Uh, but there was a discussion about should we leave it there or should he get back to square one and lose all his money again? A great discussion about that. And eventually, five years later, you know, it was decided that um, the wheel should turn uh, full circle again. And we all met up. Well, uh, those of us who were still there, of course, we'd lost Buster Merrifield, uh, Uncle Albert by that time, and, uh, and also Ken McDonald, who played Mike Fisher, the barman of the Nags Head, had gone. And he was, uh, he was a real live wire in the in the cast and it was it was terrible i mean um it wasn't the same you know that him and buster because it was you know you do form a little family it is a cliche but it is true and of course it meant so much to so many people out there you know we were very proud of it it's just uh, just a great privilege to be part of it you know because, because it helps a lot of people who, who are having a bad time just made people smile about life you know the writing and, and so on so there it came they lost all the money and it's back to square one we'd all got a bit older and we thought well that's it that's the end of it and uh in 2002 i had um a 60th birthday party and a lot of people came you know a lot of the cast came david jason came and, and nick lindhurst and also um also, John Sullivan and, uh, and the director, Tony Down, uh, producer, uh, Gareth Gwen and so on, all came down. I'd moved, you see, from London to Herefordshire. Uh, I just, just wanted to change things, really, uh, and have a different life and uh, create a garden, do all sorts of things, look after a historical house. And, and uh, we found out that uh, my wife had an ancestral connection to this ancient place here in Herefordshire. We had the birthday party. And uh, they all came, and John Sullivan came up to me and said, he said, I've had a bit of an idea. He said, I'll get back to you. And I went, oh, that sounds interesting. I wonder what that is. And uh, so Sue Holderness was here, you know, and, and I said, oh, she said, that sounds interesting. And uh, so we waited with bated breath, and nothing happened for two years. <laughs> and, and we were doing a stage play together, Sue and me, at the time. Um, we were in Brighton doing an Alan Aitborn play, and... Uh, and John Sullivan came to see it because he, he likes uh, Alan Aikborn's stuff. He took us out to the inn, pitched the idea of the green, green grass. And we just were completely bowled over, I have to say. And he said, he apologised. He said, I'm sorry it's taking so long to get back to you. He said, but I couldn't think why Boise and Marlene would want to leave London. Because Boise's second name, Car Empire, apparently was doing pretty well. Um, and Marlene loved the shops, didn't she? So she wouldn't want to be more than uh, 20 minutes from Debenhams. But he, but he said he was watching um, a rerun of an Only Fools and Horses episode which featured the, the Driscoll brothers, Peckham's answer to the craze, I suppose, you could call them. And uh, he said, that's it, of course, that's it. Uh, Boise's grasped them up and they're on the run. 
because he had to have a solid reason for them to move. They couldn't just say, oh, they wanted to go and live in the country, you know, like I did. It had to be a definite reason. And there it was. And so the green, green grass happened. And uh, not only that, of course, they wanted to do it down here around where I'd moved to in uh, Shropshire, Herefordshire. So that was a double vindication for our big move, I suppose, <laughs> 16 years ago, you know, and we had four or five uh, wonderful years down here. And recently we've seen a number of sitcoms such as Dinner Ladies and Rising Damp and Duty Free return as stage shows. Do you think that something like The Green Green Grass would work well as a transfer to the stage? Yes, I do. They always talked about doing um, a stage show of uh, Only Fools and Horses, you know, which would, of course, have done terribly well. But it never came together because uh, I think one of the main things was that, uh, you know, we'd have to have tied ourselves up for a year. And you thought, ooh, a year, I mean, we, we might do quite well financially, but it's quite a long time to tie yourself to one thing. I think David, Jason in particular, was into other things and wanted to uh, get into other areas. So I think that's why that didn't happen. Uh, with the green, green grass, uh, I don't see why not. Um, the only trouble is, of course, John Sullivan is no longer with us, and um, he died about three years ago. So I think it would be very difficult for someone else to write it up to the required standards, you know. That's the problem, I think. You achieved a certain amount with John's writing and so on, and I think it would be a shame if uh, you then had to go out and uh, do something that was less than the original. And, of course, you're appearing on stage in Neersborough on the 9th of November with your show, Only Fools and Boise. That's correct, I am, yes. This is something that um, was born out of... Uh, I met someone who just said... Uh, why don't you come on uh, cruise ships and do three quarters of an hour show and, and so on? And uh, and P and O, all the lovely people in P and O will um, give you a sort of a free cruise and you see a bit of the world. So I thought, well, that sounds like a good idea. So I sort of put some stuff together and uh, seemed to go very well. And I've done five, six cruises. And I thought, well, why couldn't I do it in uh, little theatres around the country? So uh, I sort of experimented a bit with it and. Uh, had to change a bit, add a bit, and take a bit away, and so on. And uh, but I found it, it actually works quite well. It, it's small theatres, you know, small venues. It's almost a full circle thing. So it's back to what I used to do in children's theatre. So a different town every time, playing all these smashing little theatres that pop up in these places. That uh, you know, a lot of the, a lot of them are sort of they do lots and lots of things. I mean, they'll show a film, you know, and they do little shows like mine, and a very good uh, opportunity for colleagues to try out their routines and so on, you know, that sort of thing. A multi-purpose venue, I think, is the phrase we should yes. use, we should be using <laughs> these days. But a lot of them have survived because of that adaptation to the current trends, you know. So uh, I guess a lot of little things like that. So looking forward to Nairsborough very well. I've been to Nairsborough. I can't remember why. Well, I think I went there for tea or something at one stage, but. Uh, I'm looking forward to going there and meeting the good people. And finally, before then, at the end of this month, of course, is the Only Fools and Horses Convention in Watford on Sunday the 26th of October, which I believe you're going to be appearing at. Yes, indeed. That's quite an event. So we'll probably get 2,000-odd people there. and It's pretty crowded. Uh, you know, we have to sign a lot of photographs and things that people bring along. But sort of basically meeting the people that uh, put us where we are. You know, I think there's going to be about uh, 10 of us there I think the girls, Raquel and Cassandra, will be there. And the boys here, Marlene, of course, and Denzel, the lovely Paul Barber, will be there. He's such good fun. And a lot of uh, a lot of characters that have been in two or three episodes. Yes, not only that, I mean, um, at the convention and also at this show in Nairsborough, I have to say, um, I'll be selling copies of my books, um, you know, the Reggie novels and uh, also the autobiography. I can dedicate those uh, for people. 
on the day. There's lots of memorabilia at Watford. So it's a great day. People have a lot of fun and there's some great stuff going on. Well, John Charles, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the Sitcom Club today. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Well, hope to see you somewhere. You and all your telly friends. Don't forget. (laughs) (laughs) And your website is Wigmore Books, is that right? Wigmorebooks.com, yeah. If anybody can't get to these things and they like a copy of the book or any information about where the show's going, uh, only fools and boys. You get on the website wigmorebooks.com and that'll uh, give you a listing and uh, and also details of uh, how to get a dedicated copy of the books. John Charles is also appearing in Jack and the Beanstalk at the Theatre Royal Plymouth from December the nineteenth. If this is your first time listening to the Sitcom Club, welcome. We have more than 50 episodes in the archive. You can find them all at sitcomclub.com. You can join in the conversation at the Sitcom Club on Twitter and also the Sitcom Club on Facebook. My thanks once again to John Charles for speaking to us today. And in the meantime, we'll be back next week on the Sitcom Club.